Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, hello, good morning. Andre here, lead pastor at the city. Always so good to have you join us for our online gathering. Uh, if you're new, uh, welcome, welcome. Thanks so much for tuning in. Looking forward to meeting you in person someday. Uh, for, for the rest of you, I uh, hope you're looking forward to receiving that care package that our staff will be sending to, out to you over the weekend. Uh, there's a bunch of cool stuff in there. Uh, three of you will be lucky recipients of a golden ticket. You will have a meal at my place. Thank you so much for helping me live out my fantasy of being Willy Wonka. Uh, you won't get an everlasting gobstopper or any candy, but you'll probably get some nice chicken and rice. Uh, looking forward to having you uh, join me for a meal. Well, if uh, this is your first time tuning in or if you join us recently, we are in the midst of an impromptu series on the church. I've done three talks uh, about the church and our role and purpose and identity as a people of God on the earth. In week one, we talked about the state of our church, how we're doing, and our stuff that we believe God is uh, speaking to us as a community and leading us as a community into. Uh, on week two, we talked about uh, how the church is not just a building or an event or an experience that we consume, but it is the body of Christ, the people of God on the earth. We are intertwined and intricately woven together and we exist very much as a family, not just a sporadic bunch of people gathering on occasion, but we are a family connected together, serving one another, especially in such a time. And uh, last week, we talked about our role as a missional people. The church uh, is to be a missional people. We are to endeavor to go into the places of, of hopelessness and darkness to bring forth God's light, God's mission, God's purpose, uh, God's kingdom. And so this is what we have covered so far. I encourage you to check out those talks and I'm going to conclude this impromptu series uh, with one final message for you today. As always, uh, we'll begin this time with a word of prayer. I encourage you to join me. Father, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for how you've been leading us as a community to discover what it truly means to be your church. God, we recognize that the church that we want to build is not one that we wish to be patterned after our own desires or preferences. But God, we pray that the church that we endeavor to build will be one that is patterned, that is in accordance to your design and your desire. God, we pray even past this series, God, continue to speak to us as a community of people, both the leadership but also the laity, continue to speak to us, O oh God. Lead us in this time. Cause us to capture your heart for what it means to be your people on the earth. And God, we thank you for this time of looking into Scripture, of discovering your will, your intent, your purpose for us. God, we pray today that you will speak to us in a clear and powerful manner. God, we thank you that though we are distanced in this moment, we are united through your Spirit through your word and through your mission. We thank you for this time, this great privilege. We love you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, um, on Friday, March 11, 2011, a 9.1 magnitude earthquake hit the coast of Japan and it caused um, utter devastation and chaos. I think many of you would be familiar with it. Uh, uh, the cause of events, you know, utter chaos and destruction. Uh, it was said that uh, the tremors caused a huge tsunami that, uh, that, that it sent it across the island. Some of the waves were said to be 132 feet tall and went as far as, not, as six miles 
inland. And if you look at some of these pictures, you would see whole communities that were swept away because of the devastation, cars bobbing the street, whole buildings ripped off its foundation. Some 15,000 lives were lost because of the event. And we know, of course, um, uh, one of the complications that came out of that whole uh, you know, disaster was that a nuclear plant was damaged uh, by the earthquake. And this is what we now know as the Fukushima nuclear accident. And so Japan at the time was facing an earthquake, a tsunami, and was on the cusp of a nuclear threat, a nuclear disaster. Now, one of Japan's most famous uh, musicians and composers, Ryoji Sakamoto, uh, sat in the middle of this and wondered what he could do as an artist. And some of his works uh, you would be familiar with. You know, he wrote the, the, the soundtrack and um, he wrote you know, the, the musical script for uh, The Last Emperor as well as The Revenant. He's an Oscar-winning musical composer. And there's this documentary on his life. It's called Koda. And the film, we see him traveling to Japan uh, into these uh, different areas affected by the devastation. We see him in this uh, film talking about how he heard about a piano, a grand piano that survived the devastation. Somehow this piano managed to uh, float uh, on the surface of the water and somehow it managed to survive the, the, the vast destruction that was happening all around it. And as the waters recited, the piano managed to find a landing somewhere. In the film, we, we, we hear of him uh, and his quest to find this piano that had survived this catastrophic event. And in the film, we see him approaching this piano, this broken, beat-up, water-damaged piano that survived that mess, you know, that catastrophic event. And he approached this piano, in, in the film we can see it with a kind of reverence and apprehension. And as he walked up to the piano, uh, you know, he was told of the damage that had been done to the piano. He was told of how uh, it will probably never play right again. He was told of the water damage and where the water line was. And as he was told of the damage, uh, he said this in, in documentary. He said, I came here because I wanted to hear its sound. And as he said that, he put his hands onto the keys of this damaged piano. And he puts his hands on the keys, and a strained sound emerges out of this water-damaged, uh, beaten-up piano. And he finds it immensely touching and sublime, and he says, and he vows uh, to compose something out of this strained sound from this beaten, broken, and, uh, and wrecked piano. Now, in many ways, you know, uh, as I chance upon this story, uh, it's, it speaks to me in, in a really deep way because uh, that's how the church feels like to me, uh, especially in these recent times. Beaten, bruised, tossed around by the waves of culture, tired, damaged, is viewed uh, as passé, is neglected and disregarded by some. Yet throughout history, in crisis after crisis after crisis, the church has survived. We are still here. We are still intact. But no doubt, uh, especially in recent times, we have taken quite a big hit. Beaten, bruised, tossed around, neglected and disregarded by some. From the moral failings of church leaders and the Christian university president, to the polarization caused by social and political issues, we see this not just in the wider culture, but in the church itself, to an erosion or outright departure of Christian 
values, virtues, and practices in favor of self-preservational tendencies. Uh, a recent Barna report uh, describes this climate that we're living in, particularly in reference to millennials. It calls this time as a time that is characterized by a robust rejection of the Christian faith. Strong words. The report goes on to say that, that millennials are disengaging from traditional Christianity. They're less likely to believe in absolute moral truth. They view the Bible uh, less as a reliable moral guide. They are not committed to practicing their faith, praying or worshipping during a typical week, nor confessing their sins. Uh, millennials are disengaging from traditional Christianity, a robust rejection of the Christian faith. That is what uh, you know, researchers have characterized this time as. Now, a verse I've been thinking of late in reference to all these things I've just chatted with you about comes from the book of James. And it says this in James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. And man, you know, even as I read, read that line, you know, I feel almost James speaking to us, to the 15 life groups of the city scattered across all Singapore. Hear these words. And he says, greetings. In verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And I'd like to zone in on that phrase, the testing of your faith, because I believe it speaks to so many of us in this time. It really feels like a test of our faith. Now the word test, uh, you know, we read it in its original uh, language, it would mean to learn the genuineness of something by examination and testing often through actual use. And a good way to, to look at it, or a good parallel would be uh, when you know, we put stuff through a kind of fuel test, right? If you were a vehicle manufacturer, you were a vehicle designer, you designed and built this car or this SUV to fulfill a certain kind of purpose, and you were designed it to uh, you know, move at a certain speed or to be able to handle a certain kind of terrain. And that's what you would do as a vehicle manufacturer and designer. And once that vehicle, you know, it's, it's, it's designed and then it's manufactured, the prototype is manufactured, it is then uh, put through a set of vigorous tests. You would have someone put it through a few tests, right, to take uh, whatever is touted to be and put it to the test. If it's said that it can handle uh, this kind of terrain, then it is put through a few tests to see whether it actually lives up to uh, its makers and its designers' intent and purpose for it. And this field test is to see whether the product, or in this case the vehicle, actually have, has the capacity to do what its maker has said it can do or if it's just all hype. What field tests are to a vehicle, trials are to the disciple of Jesus. Trials are a way for us to be confronted with the genuineness of our faith in the language of James, either the presence or the lack of it. And a lot of English speakers confuse uh, faith with uh, this idea of belief, right? And there are different words and different concepts in the Greek. The word for faith is the Greek word pistis, which uh, a better word to describe that kind of uh, faith is the word faithfulness. And so belief has to do with our level of trust or reliance on God, but faith has to do, or faithfulness has to do with how long we can hold on to that trust and reliance on God in the face of trials, the hard knocks of life. Uh, 
Faith in God is faithfulness to God no matter what comes our way. And that is what is being put to the test in 2020. Whether we would still hold on to our faith, whether we would still be a faithful people holding on to trust and reliance on God. And James goes on to say that this testing of our faith is so that we may be mature and complete. We may be mature and complete. And this is the vision I want to cast for our church, that we would pursue, in every sense of the word, what it means to be a mature and complete people, a mature and complete church. That we would, uh, in this trial, prove ourselves to be a people who maintain faith and faithfulness in the face of widespread uh, trial and tragedy and cultural compromise and polarization, we would maintain true to cause holding on to Christian virtue, Christian values, Christian practice, the very word of God, and not bowing down to what is palatable to culture. We would be a faithful people in this time. Another word to describe this kind of faith is a kind of resiliency, that we would be a resilient people in the face of opposition. This is what I want to say to us. This is what it means to be a mature church. Not that we have the most attractive programs, the best kind of systems, but we would be a people who would bear under, who would hold our own, who would stay true to course in the face of opposition. And so for my last week of teachings on the church, I'd like to speak to you on the subject of the church being a place where we call for where we form, where we make, where we call ourselves to be a kind of resilient disciple. This is the church, a place where we make and call for resilient discipleship. Now, two significant things happened to me in the last month. First significant thing was the passing of my, uh, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. Now, my grandmother passed on uh, at the age of 83 and she came to faith in her 30s. And she came to faith uh, in the midst of a real charismatic move in the church. And, you know, she held on uh, to her faith and was robust in her, her discipleship, in her pursuit of Jesus, all the way till her dying breath. I remember uh, seeing her, you know, every morning when she woke up, uh, when she used to uh, live with us, uh, she would get up early in the morning, she would be praying in the Spirit for hours on end, just praying uh, for different family members, praying for more of God, more of the Spirit. And she would do the same uh, before she went to bed at night. And I remember, uh, you know, visiting her a few weeks before she passed. And I remember chatting with her about the church. And uh, she said this to me, you know, um, she said, Jesus is real. She said the Holy Spirit's power is real and she told me to not miss going to church uh, because church was really important. At the point in time, she hadn't been to church for a long time because of various ailments she was uh, suffering. But even then, even in that place of facing, you know, whatever pain she was going through, even in the place of being distant from a church community, her faith was robust and resilient. That was my grandma. And I'm pretty sure that I'm here today uh, preaching to you, serving God in ministry because uh, of her prayers. Now, another significant thing that happened to me in the last month was I chanced upon a whole bunch of films and videos on the persecuted church. And in those films, I depicted uh, people who were persecuted for our faith. Uh, you know, they, they love the scripture, they love the coming together, the gathering of the saints, and because of their love for God's word and God's people in a climate of persecution, uh, they came uh, under such severe oppression because of, not, because of our faith. You know, these are fellow 
brothers and sisters. And I remember watching this video being utterly moved by that level of devotion and love for Christ and love for God's word and love for God's people that even as they went through pain and torture, they refused to give up their faith. They held through the cause. Their faith was resilient. And remember after watching those videos, being moved to consider what possessed these people, what gave them such resiliency in their faith, uh, what gave them such strength in their soul to hold up under uh, the most trying of circumstances. But I also, was also moved to consider uh, what I would do if I was placed in a similar scenario, in a similar set of circumstances. Would I still hold the course? Would I give up in the face of oppression? Is my faith even resilient to begin with? Now, I've been disturbed by, you know, these two events, of course, and the questions that is provoked in my soul. What inspired my grandma, the people who were persecuted, to persevere, press on, endure through the test of time and trial? What inspired their sense of resiliency? Now, these are questions that I honestly don't have the answers for, but through this time of thinking and reflection on the state of not just the church, but also where I'm at in my own pursuit of Jesus, I can full well say that I am not resilient or I'm not as resilient as I used to think I was. Now, one of the problems is that for many of us, we have a kind of blind optimism with regards to the future. Many of us think that everything is going to turn out okay. Well, that is true in some sense. Uh, just a cursory reading of scripture, particularly uh, in the book of uh, Matthew and Revelations, uh, it will completely dispel any notion that things are just going to be okay forever, right? Uh, while we don't celebrate wars and disasters and darkness on the earth, scripture clearly details and depicts the kind of climate we would have to endure, the kind of uh, time and uh, the kind of period that we will have to endure that precedes the return of Christ. And another kind of optimism that we have embraced as a church, it's this kind of optimism that goes, it's, it would happen in my time, that the kind of darkness, evil, test, and trial is for a future generation to tackle. It's a future generation's battle. And the other thing that we're really optimistic about is our ability to stand the test of faith even when things get bad. We somehow have talked ourselves into the belief that, hey, you know, I... I'm confident enough, I'm optimistic enough that even when things get really bad, the Spirit will just sustain me somehow and I'll stand the test of oppression and opposition and circumstance and persecution. Now that to me is just careless and reckless thinking because a life of compromise and apathy in the peaceful present does not lead to resiliency in the perilous future. We do not stumble into steadfastness it has to be formed, tested, forged, and proven. And what has been observed by researchers and pastors around the world, especially in these times, is this, that there is a disappearance of the church engagement that is characterized by commitment, resilience, and sacrifice among many believers. And in its place, we have a new kind of Christian faith that is disengaged, that is characterized by sporadic engagement, passivity, commitment phobia, and a consumerist framework. And that's the way we approach the church of Jesus Christ then I have serious doubts in our resiliency to hold fast, to stand true when trying times come our way. And it's because of that you now I've come to a kind of pastoral urgency 
Because I realized, and you like me have probably realized, that this probably won't be the only time where we are forced to suspend our large gatherings. In all reality, this probably won't be the only major trial that we would face in the life of our church. And the most startling realization is this, that we probably aren't as strong and steadfast and resilient as we would like to think. And because of that, we need to take the work of spiritual formation, spiritual growth, discipleship with utmost and absolute seriousness. Our usual way and mode of approaching church will not be enough. It won't cut it. We can't go back to business as usual. We need to take our growth, our discipleship to Jesus with absolute seriousness. We cannot be careless or careless with our time. We cannot push the urgent into the future. We must take our walk with Jesus seriously. It's either the church commits to be faithful to Scripture and calls and demands of its people today, or the crises, the trials, the tragedies of the future will do so instead. The church isn't to be just a place of information. It is to be a place of formation. The church isn't just to be a place where people are simply converted. It is to be a place where we make disciples. And the church is more than just a supportive fellowship. It is an alternative society. The goal of the church isn't to run programs or events as good as it is. The goal of the church is to make disciples, resilient disciples, who are formed into the image of Christ, who are able to withstand against, stand firm against the pool of culture, widespread compromise, trials and tragedies that are surely coming our way. We need to be such a people, a people characterized by resiliency and characterized by our sense of commitment towards discipleship to Jesus. That is the church. The theologian Karl Barth articulated the essence of the church as such. The church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. These two elements, radical dissimilarity and hopeful promise, is to characterize the people of God. And so we come back to our mission as the church. And I don't believe it's just the city's mission, but the mission of the global, the historic, the universal church that call to make disciples. Now, if we were to ask, be asked, right, what is the mission of the church? All of us can probably articulate it, that we are called to make disciples. While the call to discipleship is so clear, right, we can all agree that we are all called to make disciples. We often get it muddled up. We think of discipleship as a kind of mentorship, a program, leadership development, or fancy way of describing a churchgoer. But I believe discipleship is so much more than that. And it's with that that we look at a passage of scripture in Mark chapter 8, starting from verse 34. It says this in God's word. Then he, meaning Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good it is for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory 
with the holy angels. Now that's a strong passage of scripture and that is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to forsake, to sacrifice, to lay down in order that we may follow. And it's so uh, concerning and sad that we have reduced discipleship to Jesus as simply showing up to church and participating in the program. But it's so much more than that. Now, if you were a first century Jew living in Jesus' day, uh, most certainly you would identify Jesus as a rabbi, as a teacher. Now, a rabbi was someone who went town to town with his yoke, and this was a first century euphemism for his set of teachings or way of reading the Bible. And that was Jesus, a young, brilliant rabbi, young, brilliant teacher. And of the 90 times or so that uh, scripture records people interacting of Jesus, upwards of 60 times he's called rabbi or teacher. Now, this actually has a ton of implications to this idea of following Jesus, of being his disciples. Because following Jesus today has almost become a kind of cliche, right? Especially when the term follower has been diluted and reduced to going on an app, clicking a button and having access to information, having access to a person with little to no demand on an ethical or moral or relational level. But in that day, to follow someone implied close proximity and not just that, it involved reorienting your whole life in order that you may do so well. It had uh, the connotations of great sacrifice. It came at great personal cost. And that's what it meant to be a follower in that day, to follow Jesus in that day. And I believe to follow Jesus today has stronger demands than just clicking a button. It involves great personal cost, great sacrifice. It cannot be done from afar. It has to be done up close. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Today, however, we have created you know, a new category in the church, right? A distinction between a you know, nominal Christian and a true disciple of Jesus. Now, that distinction would have been utterly lost to Jesus and the early church. In order to follow him, you had to be his disciple. Discipleship wasn't something you opt in and out of. It was something that you, were either, you either are or not, right? Every time the word disciple is mentioned in the Bible, it is a noun, not a verb, meaning that it is not something done to you. It is something that you either are or not. And so it wouldn't be accurate for us to say, hey, I'm discipling you or I'm being discipled. No, it, it wouldn't make sense because it's a noun. Another way to put it is uh, we are all believers of Jesus. But I wouldn't say I'm believering you or I'm being believed. No, it's something I either am or am not. And that's what discipleship is. That's what being a disciple is to be. It's not a program. It's not something done to you. You either are a disciple of Jesus or you are not a disciple of Jesus. And tragically, as the church, we have created categories and, and by extension levels of commitment of varying degrees for the people of God. And it wasn't meant to be that case at all. We are called, all called to be disciples of Jesus, to forsake personal freedoms in order that we may follow him well and sincerely. Dallas Willett has this masterful definition of what a disciple is. He says, The disciple is one who intent upon becoming Christ-like, and so dwelling in his faith and practice systematically and progressively rearranges his affairs to that end. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what I would suggest is base level 
of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This isn't just for the gung-ho or the super passionate. We are all called to reorient our whole lives, every part of it, not just what we do on Sunday, but all through the week in order that we may follow Jesus well, adopting His way, adopting His virtues, adopting His values, His characteristics, and making that our life's ambition and mission to express Him well, to a world that so desperately wants a king like Jesus. And so what are all the implications of what I've said? You know, what does it mean to be a church that pursues wholeheartedly this vision of making disciples for Christ? Does it mean more programs? Does it mean more events? I don't think so. I think it's, it's that we no longer tolerate nominal Christianity and we call for every single member of our church to pursue Jesus wholeheartedly and it will take our entire community to do that not just for the leaders not just for the pastors but our entire community to get on board this vision that is not just my vision but it is a biblical vision that comes from jesus we are all called to follow him with all of our heart all of our soul all of our mind all of our strength we are to say no to nominal christianity we are to say no to flirting with the church but we are to endeavor to throw our whole lives into this great and pursuit of following Jesus, trusting that His way is the only way, it's the truest way to life in all its fullness. And so in response to all that I've said, I'd like to call our church to three shifts. And the first shift is this, for us to move from dabbling to devotion, for us to no longer just come to church to try Jesus, but to take on the entirety of His call with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength to allow Him to truly be Lord of our entire lives. Let us be a people that model, that express, that endeavor to be fully devoted to Christ. The next shift is this. It is for us to move from information to practice. It says this in James chapter 1, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. And we so desperately need to reorient faith from something that is something that we believe into a lifestyle that we adopt. That is what it means to be a people of faith. Now, in contrast to the early church, we live in one of the most well-resourced Christian cultures in all of human history. We can get any number of Bible translations we want. Podcasts are readily available from gifted more popular, more handsome Bible teachers. We can watch video sermons. We can listen to live worship. We can read in-depth studies in the Greek, the Hebrew. We have nearly entire collections of Bible and commentaries and concordances right at our disposals. We have conferences of every kind. And yet, the church's influence and ability to capture the imagination of the world seems mediocre at best. This is so because the church has been reduced to a vehicle of knowledge transference instead of a community that's devoted to practicing the way of Jesus together. Notice that Jesus did not say they will know me by your compelling ideology. He said this, that they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another, by your practices. The truth is, information gives us a false sense of safety and security. We think just because we know more, just because we have access to more information, knowledge and insight, somehow we are safer, we are more secure because of that information. But it does us good to remember that the Bible says that knowledge puffs up, 
Knowledge makes us prideful, it makes us arrogant, it makes us complacent. It's not enough to just know things. It's not just, not just enough to know concepts in Scripture, but it is, there's an imperative for us to take what we hear on church, in church on Sunday, what we understand from Scripture, and endeavour to practice it, endeavour to have it shaped our way of living, shape our practices, shape how we interact with the world, with people. That is what it means to truly live out our faith. It's not just enough to be informed. We need to be transformed by our practices. And the last shift I'd like to cause church to is this, to move from relevance to resilience. Now, before I move on further, I'd like to clarify by saying that I have a high value for relevance. You've seen it in my teaching, right? You know, I quote love, I quote Sam Smith, you know, I try to make this really accessible and relevant, especially for the young people. To the best of ability, I try to make my teachings relevant to especially cultural issues and stuff that we may face on the day-to-day. How does the Word of God, how does Scripture inform us uh, in light of all that we face culturally and socially? But my fear is this, that in our quest for relevance, we have been overtimed conformed into the image of the world that we are called to reach. If we, if we can be honest, much of our relevance today or the relevance that we seek after in our churches today is less missional as opposed to being palatable to the world, being likable, being accepted by the world. But I find myself coming back to this verse in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this in God's word, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Or in some translations, it says a special people or a peculiar people. And it speaks to me, it says that the people of God are to be distinctive, are to be different from the rest of the world. Not weird, not weird for weird's sake, but we are to be distinctive in our ethical vision, in our moral imperatives. We are to be different as the people of God. And it says to me, what, and it speaks to me and asks the question, what is so different about our community? What's so different about the church short of what we do on Sunday morning? How are we different from the rest of the world? Perhaps it's time we lean into Jesus' vision for what it means to be the people of God in our world today. And I'm sure when we fully capture what Scripture has called us to be, we will be a distinctive people in our world today. We are to move from simply pursuing, chasing after blind relevance into pursuing resiliency. And as I speak to you on devotion, on practicing on take on moving past being just being informed to actually endeavoring to live out much of what we believe and also resiliency i think of uh the character of daniel in the bible as a kind of example and archetype for the church for us as god's people and in the ninth chapter of daniel we read of this remarkable account of an angel visiting daniel while he was in exile to inform him of the effectiveness of his prayer it says this in god's word while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for His holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you begin to pray, a word went out which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision." Now, this is a remarkable text, right, that describes to us, that shows us the effectiveness of our prayer. And a lot of people focus in this text on the image of the angel. It's extraordinary, right? The angel came to Daniel to speak to him. 
But something else that sticks out to me in this verse is this, that it records that in this time that Daniel was praying, he prayed during the time of the evening sacrifice, the evening prayer. At this point, Daniel had been in Babylon, had been in exile for almost 70 years. Yet we find that he is ordering his time around the evening sacrifice. At that point, he had not seen a sacrifice in the temple for decades. In fact, the temple had already been destroyed. Yet his internal reality wasn't defined by his external circumstance, by the Babylonian character. In fact, he ordered his life around God's rhythm, around God's time, around what uh, was to be sacred for God's people, and that was Daniel. And we can learn a lot about from Daniel's example of maintaining and manifesting faithfulness whilst being still immersed in a radically dissimilar culture. And so Daniel is an example for us to adopt. Daniel's life characterizes devotion, resilience, but also putting the things of God into practice. And I don't know about you, you I know that's a whole bunch of content that I've gone through and I would endeavor to pass out to elaborate further in the weeks to come. But that's the vision for what we are called to be in the world. We are called to be disciples of Christ, not just a community that gathers on occasion and hears a good talk and moves on to living uh, similar lives to the rest of the world. We are called to be resilient in faith, in our morals, in our ethical imperatives. We are called to practice the way of Jesus, to not just hear about the things of the kingdom, but to put it into practice. And we are called to be radically devoted to Christ, His way, but also to the community that we are privileged to be part of, to practice and embody wholehearted devotion. And I don't know about you, whether you see a kind of disconnect from what we see in Scripture as the life that we are called to live and your own life, where you're at today. You know, I for one am confronted with that disconnect and wonder if I even have a kind of resiliency that will stand firm in you know, really trying times. And I don't know whether you're confronted with that same reality. But the hope that I have to offer today, after we've heard all of that, is this. Even as I lay out all of that traits, like devotion, practice, and resiliency, and confronted with my inability to live up to this inner of myself, I'm reminded of how history shows us Jesus' commitment to His church and how that commitment is unshakable. Christ and His commitment to us, even when we fail, even when we are flawed, that commitment is unshakable. And though we have profaned His name among nations, He retains a passion for His people. We may be hypocrites at times, we may embarrass Him and distort His message, but Christ still remains covenanted, committed to His people for better or for worse. The good news is the church is still the bride of Christ, even when we fail, even when we are flawed, even when we you know, walk away and, 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 and move away from His path and His name, He still calls us His bride. And Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says, Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of, with water through the word and to, prevent, to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Jesus does not view the church through a doctrinal, moral, ethical, or sociological lens. He sees it through a covenantal lens. 
Jesus is not committed to the church because he has to. He is committed to the church because he's in love with the church. He's in love with you and me, even though we fail, even though we are flawed, even though we at times don't take him all that seriously, he still loves us and is committed to us. When God used Moses to call the children of Israel into their destiny, he made four promises. He says, I will take you out, I will rescue you, I'll redeem you and I will take you to me. Now these four promises in that day were the same four invitations a young man would make to a woman on her wedding day. God wasn't just taking Israel and delivering Israel. God was in an essence proposing to Israel and saying, I love you, I want to be with you, I want to wed you, you are my bride. And the challenge that God has with us is that we don't reciprocate the intensity of God's love, do we? Right? We are in many ways an unfaithful bride and God is a wounded lover. 2 Timothy 4.10 talks about how Paul was sad and disappointed when his friend Demas has embraced the way of the world. He says this, that Demas, because he has loved this world, has deserted me. And in many ways, that is how God feels when we love the world. He feels a kind of desertion. But for whatever reason, that I can't fathom and that I can't fully grasp. God still loves us. God seeks us out. God chases after us. God redeems and restores us and gives us strength to move ahead. Christ seeks us out, welcomes us home, washes away our sins and showers us with His love. The church can be beautiful despite of our brokenness because grace is beautiful. The church can renew her calling because God loves her with an undying love. Even in our brokenness, even in our ugliness, God still loves us and He showers us with love and grace so that we may be called beautiful once again. And the question is this, will we respond to Jesus' passion for the church? for His bride, for His people. We, not, we may not be fully devoted today. We may not be putting all the things that He said into practice. We may not be fully resilient, but Jesus still loves us and He's fully committed to us. And it's from that place of love, it's from that overflow of grace that we may truly capture what it means to His people on the earth. We cannot do it in and of our strength. And it hasn't meant for us to do it. But He comes alongside us, gives us His love, gives us His grace so that we may live in accordance to His will. Close off with one final text in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Now this is a verse that we pray so often and we've talked about this verse so, so often. And this verse captures our need for the Spirit and how the Spirit comes in power in the midst of crisis. And we so need the Spirit in our life today to help us to live into the vision of what it means to be a resilient disciple. It says this in God's Word about the Spirit, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. In this verse, we see it's written in a time of crisis. We see the outpouring of the Spirit and how the Spirit comes when we need Him most, when we call upon His name. But we often don't talk about the middle. And the middle is this, that the people of God comes to 
spirit comes to God with humility, humbling themselves, seeking His face, and repenting and turning away from the wicked ways, then the spirit comes in power. We have crisis today and we need the Spirit. And what happens in between is our responsibility. We come to God with humility, with weakness, and with prayer. It's time to come back to a holy dependency. It's time to respond to Jesus' passionate love for the church. And He calls us back to Him today, to a place of holy dependency, trusting that His love and grace will enable us and empower us to live in accordance to His ways. It's time to come back to Holy Dependency Church. And so coming back to that story of the piano that I shared earlier with you, a piano that is broken, beaten, tossed around, and seen as imperfect to be disregarded and neglected. But then the master comes to the piano, and he puts his hands on the keys, and a strange sound emerges from the piano. And it's a sound to be used for the master's work, for beauty and for glory. My question to us as a people today is this. In light of where we are at as a church, not just our church, but the global church, broken, beaten, worn out through the storms of life, tossed around by the waves of culture, will we allow the master to put his hands upon the church once again? When the master puts his hands on the keys, a sound emerges. Though strained, though imperfect, but the master uses that sound for his purpose and for his good work. And so what kind of sound will emerge from the church today, from our church today? My prayer that it it would be a sound of humility, of weakness, of prayer in recognition for our great need for God, the work of His Spirit in response to Jesus' undying, consistent, passionate love for His church. Let's come back to first love, ladies and gentlemen. Let's come back to holy dependency on Christ and let's grow to be a resilient people in time. And so I'd like to close off this time with calling us as a church back into a place of humility, weakness and prayer. And perhaps in the last few months you have been apathetic You've been passive and careless about the things of God. Perhaps you have entertained certain compromises and indulgences in your life. Or perhaps, you know, you have always embraced the world's vision for what success and a good life is to be instead of adopting Jesus' vision for life on earth. It's time to come back to a place of holy dependency or trust in our God. And you might be feeling a whole lot of dissonance and disconnect internally as you read scripture, as you hear of God's word about what life is to be and you reflect on your own. And it's in that place of despair, of brokenness, of you know, being confronted with our own failures that Christ calls us to come back to Him. And when we come to Him in this state, He doesn't reject us, He doesn't push us away, but He embraces us with His arms wholeheartedly. It's in that place that He pours out His grace his love over us. Is that a place where we experience the fullness of God's love, His grace for us, that we are truly empowered to change, to live in accordance to His vision, His way for us. And so, church, let me call you today to come back to first love, to come back to holy dependency on Christ, to come back to a place where we look to Jesus 
as our master, as our teacher, trusting that our bridegroom king will embrace us today as we do so in humble repentance. And so let's all commit this time to prayer together. Let's do so. Jesus, today as a church, we come before you in repentance. We reflect on our lives and how we have conducted ourselves in recent times. God, we recognize that we perhaps have been apathetic and have entertained certain indulgences and have compromised and have adopted the way of the world as our way of living. God, we recognize that we haven't been the bride that you deserve. We, we have been blemished and entertained all sorts of things that we have shouldn't have. God, we pray today, even as we come to you in repentance, we pray for your love, for your grace to meet us in this moment. God, we thank you that you are our faithful bridegroom. You never leave us. You never forsake us. God, we thank you for your constant and consistent love for us. And God, as a church, as a people, we pray that we will live lives that reciprocate the intensity of your love for us. That we won't be callous or callous in our ways, but we will live lives that are worthy of the love that you have given to us. Help us to do so. Help us to be a resilient people in the face of trial, tragedy, and compromise. Help us to stay true to cause. Help us to be rooted and grounded in your love. When the things of the world are shaken, when trust systems, when the systems of the world are being eroded and shaken, Lord, we pray that we will stay true to cause, firm in your name, firm in your ways. We thank you for what you're doing in us today. Spirit, do a brand new, do a deep work in our church, we pray. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Let's go back to worship together.